cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the Film Cult Podcast. Tonight, I'm incredibly excited to have my 30th episode with someone this special. A filmmaker that has shaken all foundations of conventional cinema, and one of the coolest voices in modern cinema, Cheryl Dunier. Cheryl, how are things? You know, keeping plates spinning, tossing in the air, catching them, tossing them behind my back. You know, all that as I walk on a tightrope called the future. Well, it's a pressing time, so I may as well start pressing. What do you make of the uprising in the streets right now, and do you see real change coming from this? You know, I am very hopeful. I'm an always hopeful person. I mean, you, you see it in all my work that um, I, I, I like to walk up to situations that are difficult um, I like to open those doors, and I like to walk through and keep on walking to the next difficult thing. So this is, you know, this is an opportunity. It's an opening. Everybody come running through that can make it through at this door, and uh, we'll continue to walk together to the next one with, with issues that are happening. You know, I think, uh, you know, this fight has been going on for, you know, eons, you know, in the sense of uh, the class struggles that are happening right now, beyond the race struggles that are happening right now, beyond, you know, our politics kind of crumbling. I think my overall statement and overarching statement about it is the king is dead, long live the king. Um, and what I mean by that is that, you know, everything that's supposed to die, that's been around too long and, you know, structures that uh, are, are not useful for us anymore have to be, you know, removed we have to, you know, bury them, uh, you know, end their, their term and turn to the, the, the new voice of the future um, and, and on all levels. And I think what's happening naturally is um, if you look at that, some people are, are leaving their positions. Um, people are being found out at, at these corporate levels. I mean, not the real corporate greed, but, you know, white, white class criminals and, and things like that. But, you know, at the level that we can understand um, it, they're, they're, they're being, you know, uh, watchdogs and, and, and it's all coming out. And I think there's a, a, a movement that's been in place for quite some time. I think since the, you know, pretty much the 21st century, uh, and, and, and now these folks are, are coming in and, and, and are changing and filling those empty, um, positions, uh, with real, uh, hope. Well, speaking of the future, what do you make of Biden's approach to issues? Do you think that he is the best candidate that America could have chosen? And do you see him as someone who's going to help champion issues going forward? Um, what do I think of Biden? I mean, Biden has my vote. I mean, I think everybody is like, let's get the man out of the, uh, and I won't say his name because it's, if you say it too many times and, you know, an ugly face appears in front of you and scares you to death. Um, but uh, I, I think, you know, Biden is going to be as, as effective as we let him. Um, I think we are awake a bit, and um, I think people are, are understanding the value of what it means to be citizen. Um, and, uh, you know, I think if he and when he takes his office, he will hear the roar of, of the, the people. Um, so if, if, it's, if we're looking for somebody who's going to listen and, you know, make some sort of, you know, response to it, Sure, Biden's the right choice. And if we're looking for radical change, no, Biden's not the right choice. What do you want to see happen going forward in the world right now? What changes do you personally want to see championed first? Um, I think a concept uh, for me, you know, the first kind kind of concept, is a kind of international 
concept of, of what it means to be citizens in the world, understanding what humanity is in the world, and, and how we can partner to save the world from uh, global warming, um, you know, international corporate greed, um, you know, antitrust stuff happening in our country. I mean, you know, all those things should happen, and I want to happen. Um, I've been wanting them to happen my whole life. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm, when I say uh, it's going to happen, I, I will continue to make work that influences people to the possibility. What advice do you give your white friends and what they can do to help out? And what are some areas of education that you'd like to direct them to? I mean, I think there's an extant amount of, of uh, literature out there and um, sites and groups and, and, uh, and materials for for everybody to participate in and read. Um, I've come on the board of a few organizations uh, lately, um, which are predominantly stacked with uh, older white liberals. Um, and they, of course, keep turning to me for answers. And I, I, the answer's in them, you know? It's a, it's a painful answer um, when you're telling somebody who's run a nonprofit film organization or runs something that means it's, on, it's been on a mission to affect change in, say, the arts or um, in uh, public policy or whatnot. And, and here they are. They've been there. They represent something, but that's not enough. And I think they need to step down and, and move aside and let, let, let the you know, new blood you know, go. I think a lot of these people who run these organizations, I'm not going to point them out, um, but I think they uh, should assess their value. They should assess what it, you know, they should assess their retirement, you know, and what they can do when they're not in that office and how they can bring new people into those uh, positions. Mm -hmm. So that's what I say to my, that's what I say to, because um, uh, predominantly most of those organizations that are representing people of color, queers, uh, LGBTQI, et cetera, are run by white people and not run by the people that, you know, quote unquote, explore. My biggest one is, for example, um, public radio. Uh, I'll use that as a great example. Um, several, you know, NPR-like shows that we know and quote-unquote love are and have been run for 30-some years or more by folks that uh, have never really dug into uh, having uh, different color tones of voices speak on subjects. Um, it's consistently the sound of the same kind of you know, white liberal voice that's there telling, you know, the story of other. So I want to hear others talk about ourselves. You know, I want to hear our, our voices out there. I want to see our images out there. And we're starting to, again, the window is open, we push down the door, everybody runs through, and let's do what we can do. So I say, you know, just step aside and you know, find other ways to partner um, my white colleagues and friends and allies um, and let other folks take over and, 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 and trust that they're going to be telling the stories and adding the voice that will really make America um, uh, full and complete and, uh, and, and have all the Americans in there, not just one type of American. Do you think that we're doing enough to try to get that man out of the White House right now? Um, I think, you know, in, we've been, up until COVID uh, hit us and really woke a lot of people up in a variety of different ways, uh, we were sleeping. 
we were comfortable sleeping and holding our devices and sleeping with them and, uh, um, you know, grabbing them in the morning and, and, and placating ourselves with, you know, a variety of uh, objects uh, and lifestyle choices. Uh, some of those now have been, you know, they aren't choices anymore. So I think we are, you know, on this, like uh, I would say, um, it, it, we're in this moment of, you know, let's do something. You know, let's 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 take control. There's a lot of talk about African Americans, females, members of the LGBTQI community, minorities in general, frankly, not getting their fair shot in narrative cinema. What advice can you give any groups trying to help break into these archaic molds? Um, I, lo- I love your choice of language here, archaic mold. Um, that um, listen, narrative and storytelling. Um, are, are things that are in, in us. You know, we all have stories to tell. Um, uh, you know, we all need to hear those stories. We all need to, you know, fill out what those ideas. There's no concept of what um, one LGBTQ person looks like to the next one, right? So why don't we start seeing, uh, I say this about, in particular, say, blackness or queerness. Um, there's not just one kind of queer or one kind of black. There's a variety of them. So let's see all the blackness, all the queerness, all those stories start appearing in uh, television, in media, in uh, streaming, and in, in whatever you know, uh, whatever we like to entertain ourselves with. Um, so we need to really open up those things and really allow folks to do that. So keep on st- telling those stories. Um, I would say keep on um, pushing them out there in small formats, in big formats, but just keep figuring out how to um, uh, uh, communicate them to an audience um, and to listeners. So that, you know, by any means necessary. Uh, and, and well, it's not, you know, it's, it's, it's not the quote unquote, you know, I'm gonna, I want to be in Hollywood. You know, I want to be a star. What does that mean? You know, you really have to assess that. Um, I want to, you know, be a big director. What does that mean? You know, what do you want from that? Do you want to be a storyteller or do you just want to be hanging out with, you know, uh, Tom Cruise and, you know, Samuel Jackson or, you know, some of the bigger stars out there now? Um, Or do you want to actually affect change and affect storytelling? Um, And you have stories to tell that will will be heard. So that's, that's what I say to the young people. Like, really figure out why you want to, you know, tell your stories, what they are. And, and how to do them and be committed to them and for the life of them. It's not going to be an easy um, task because there's so much noise out there. But if you slowly, as I did, start to build your audience from, uh, you know, I started with my, you know, core group of, of folks in Philadelphia that I was making work with and, and sort of took uh, over putting, you know, myself in the picture um, to putting more people in the picture till, you know, the point where I'm, you know, where I am today. Well, I'd like to take you way back now. And since you mentioned Philadelphia, do you think that growing up in Philadelphia helped shape the artist that you would become? And was it easy to acquire the kinds of art that you were looking for in Philly at the time? You know, I do. I, Philadelphia is, you know, a wonderful place for any um, conscious uh active uh, person to grow up. And it's, it's one of the seven cities, I call them, where there's agency within diversity. Um, has a long legacy of African-American 
you know, um, being uh, it was where people escaped slavery from and, and were able to, you know, be free. So if you, if you look at that, Philly has a long history of, of, of being the this, this site of, of quote-unquote liberty and justice for all, right? Um, so, yeah, Philly was excellent. Lots of, lots of people, lots of um, uh, recognition, and lots of great people are from there. Um, so uh, I, I find my collaborators, I find my energies, I find my thoughts from, from all those experiences that I had in, in Philly, and I uh, will always stay tight in my heart and, and, and you know, some place that I dip back into. Well, was it easy to get the art that you wanted to back then, or did it not come until a little bit later? Um, I think, surprisingly, in the early 90s, at the beginning of the Culture Wars, where I started making work, it was, I wouldn't say it's easy. Um, I, I, I was in a position where I was at uh, in graduate school and had the tools to make some stuff, um, like the works that I made then, so I was able to make work. Um, and because there was nothing out there, I mean, nothing, um, in the sense of black lesbian, uh, narrative work, um, at that, in the late eighties, early nineties, I was there to make that work. And so, yes, it was a easier task when there was an empty slate. And I must say this too, if, if you look at the watermelon woman, which is, a, a, you know, the first African-American lesbian feature film, um, and that it, it came out back, what, 96 um, and then, you know, the next one coming out uh, uh, by D. Reese Pariah in 2011. Uh, it's a long time for the next lesbian, black lesbian feature film to happen, right? So um, is it enough? Is it time? You know, we got to close those margins and, and, and really say that as much work that needs to come out about black lesbian lives need to be out there. We have the 20s now. Um, we have, you know, a variety of other showrunners who are who are queer and out and um, of color. So, um, you know, times here are changing. Let's keep on just doing it. What were some of the formative artists that helped to shape who you would become as an artist? Sure. Well, it's interesting. Um, I was blessed enough to be able to attend events where Audre Lorde was at a couple conferences in the late 80s, early 90s, before she passed. Um, I was blessed enough to be introduced by Michelle Parkerson, one of my professors at Temple University, who was very good friends and collaborators with Essex Hemphill um, and um, all the black gay artists who were um, making work at that moment uh, was my entree to them. Um, and, and those type of people were definitely ones, and in particular Marlon Riggs, uh, you know, black gay uh, filmmaker who's passed away because of HIV, um, but went hard and strong and told his story um, in, in all of his works. Um, I, and I, I, you know, basically Essex told me one thing. He said to me, Cheryl, and this is, he, he was in Philly at the time when, when, when he passed, he said, look, if you are made a token, what do you do with a token? And you can't do this anymore, but this is what you could do then. You take a token and you put it in a bus and you ride and you go someplace. So um, that motto um, was one that he instilled in me, and I, I believe. Um, and then Audre Lorde's model of, of are you doing your work? Are you making your personal political? Are you being all the titles that you claim to be? Are you working for those things? Are you creating that work? So those are my sort of um, 
gods and goddesses that I, you know, uh, think about. Also, Barbara Hammer, another uh, filmmaker who, uh, experimental filmmaker who passed away, made a, a, a variety of experimental lesbian films um, that was really never supported by, you know, the mainstream, but definitely had her own stream of making work. She was somebody who I met along the way and, and you know, just always was supporting me and mentioning my name and, and being my friend and encouraged me. So those folks were, they're my, you know, four, four mothers and fathers and days and, and whatnot um, in, in this, uh, you know, in the work that I do. Your early films were earth shattering for filmmakers like myself. They had such a unique and powerful voice to them. Were you actively trying to forge your own style or was, or were you trying to make your own version of something? Right. Um, I graduated from Rutgers Mason Gray School of the Arts, um, where I was studying with painters and sculptors um, in a program, and I was uh, I was trained by um, like Martha Rossler and 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 uh, uh, a variety of activist artists who would, you know, their mantra was make work and make unique work and play with form and push boundaries with it. Um, and I still do that today, and I believe in, in um, you know, having those stories that are political. Um, I believe in, uh, you know, really um, uh, doing that with, with what I do um, and trying to create um, new ways to tell stories. Um, it's not just about it being an interesting story. It's also about the form being interesting. So. Um, I, you know, came up with the quote-unquote Dunye Manchuri is what I call the, the format that I used in The Watermelon Woman and other pieces like The Owls and all my short work. Um, and I um, see how it's affected and influenced, you know, down to, you know, tons of shows and, and things today and other people are using it. So I, I definitely feel like um, form is something that, you, that goes hand-in-hand hand with content. What did you learn most from your period of making short films? Hmm. I really have to come to that one. Um, I think making short films for me allowed me to understand what completion is. And I think that's one thing that artists really find it difficult to do, in particular around film and video and, and um, you know, um, other kind of forms of media where you want to have a perfect ending. Um, and I think the other, other perfect endings are wanted in life for a variety of things. But short films allow you to complete it, find your audience or not, put it away and move on to the next one. So shorts is what I always, when I was uh, teaching at a variety of universities, I was a professor at San Francisco State, uh, last uh, job I had as a professor. Um, and that's what I would say to them, make short film. Complete it. Get the short nugget of an idea out. See how that plays, and then move on to something longer. So shorts are are, are key. You can you can make a short with you uh, and your you know your group or your friends or yourself, even. So yeah, shorts are great. They're here to stay. Attention span generally is around you know ten minutes for something or less. So yeah, shorts are, are something that you know are, are, can be reckoned with and, and really um, useful right now. What sparked the inspiration to make a feature after Greetings from Africa? Then, um, what sparked that was Greetings from Africa came for me at a moment where I had received a grant from uh, an organization in Pennsylvania. I was already um, 
sort of starting to move towards making a feature um, and start, sort of already started thinking about The Watermelon Woman. Um, I had, you know, come up with the idea. I had made my way all the way to some producers in New York, like Christine Bashan and uh, Ted Hope and, and, and James Seamus at Good Machine. That was Those are the organizations that were making independent film there and queer cinema at that moment. The indie wood was there. Um, so I was... Uh, uh, really inspired by what they were doing. And one of them said to me, um, you know, I love the idea of the watermelon woman. Nobody understands your video art. You need to figure out the kernel of what you're making um, about the watermelon woman. It's about yourself or, or in that style or it's talking head. Make it as a short film and not a video. And we will help you get it out there to international film festivals. So that was really the spark that lit the fire to make Greetings from Africa, get it out there internationally into the Berlin Film Festival and a variety of other ones. And then having um, that feedback and that knowledge so that funders that, that you know would know where it was. So programmers would know who I was. Um, but it was, it was stepping out of the borders of what we understand as U.S., or, or um, the American cinema that we, we know and love and think is commercial and, you know, plays on the screens and whatnot. It was it's moving beyond the borders of, of this country and our, our, the limits that we have and, and, and reaching audiences who would feel the same thing in, in you know, in, in Tokyo or in Berlin or Paris or London. And so um, that that's something I, I really believe you know, if we can't physically do it right now, um, we could start having those dialogues as artists right now with people who are outside of this country. Um, and, and, and I think that definitely will help um, create visibility for what people are trying to say. Were you thinking at the time that you could become that inspiration that you were searching for in The Watermelon Woman? Interesting. Um, I think that I... You know, the film was, you know, it took me a couple of years to kind of conceive it and make it. Um, and I knew going into it and I knew coming out of it that this was going to be something, um, you know, on all levels, uh, uh, really powerful and, 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 uh, and, and put down, you know, a first for storytelling and for visibility. So, yes, I, I did have the knowledge that I was in the, you know, I was on a mission and, and I was, uh, and it was being fulfilled by, by what I was doing. And um, I'm, I'm so happy that I didn't stop. Um, and, and I, you know, just kind of just went, you know, forward with it. I, I don't think there was ever a moment of like, I'm going to throw this all in and not do it again. I'm all about completing things and moving on to the next thing. So, you know, that's what I was going to do. I did it by hook or by crook. And then, um, you know, bingo, I had success with it. So that's, that's all I could say. Some could say that the films of the 1970s seem to be kinder to African-Americans than any other time before or since. Do you agree with this or do you see the shift in acceptance now? Um, I would say it was a different kind of uh, exploration of African-American life, blackness in the 70s. Um, I mean, black, if you're talking about black exploitation, I would say that, you know, that that lived and died. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, by the late 70s, you're not seeing that kind of work. And it took, you know, all the way into the, the mid 80s to the late 80s, 90s for our next kind of wave to come around. 
So um, I think it's in cycles, uh, and hopefully the cycles are, you know, shorter and, and changing. But um, you know, I think that, that the, the the greatest moment is the present. You know, um, the, the greatest moment is the present. But remembering what was before, um, and how to like either you know enrich it from those experiences. Um, and, and, and stories and, 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 and strategies or um, create invent new ones. When you moved into working with HBO, did you feel like there was a certain type of freedom in cable television that you maybe never got in theatrical films? Or do you still prefer to do a 90 to 120 minute film? Um, when I started working with HBO the first time, I was, and that was right after The Watermelon Woman, I and it wasn't directly after. It took me another two years to kind of invent my next project, which is Stranger Inside the Feature. It was the first HBO um, independent film up for them that was, uh, I think, we, you know, shot at 99. Um, you know, I conceived it in 98, 99, right after um, uh, sort of the Word No Woman's Round. But um, it, it, it took me a long time to still get that one. But once HBO gave the green light, once I was able to... Um, pull my team together and, and cast and whatever, make it. I had full, um, we had full as a team, uh, and all my keys were women or queers or people of color. Um, we had the full reign of the campus where we shot it, which is a women's, closed down women's correctional facility. I had the full reins to uh, create my cast and, and create my team. Um, as well as in the edit, and they were, and you know what they did, they, you know, were they gave the budget, um, and they allowed us to create it, and then in post, they were, uh, in, when the you know studio comes in, to say, you know, we need this or that and change things, they were there to add a little bit more to that budget and make sure it stood out strong. So I was like, wow. Um, if this is what you get uh, by you know working on the other side, let me have some more. You know, well, when you started doing episodic television, did your style of documentary in your earlier works help you with that fast paced world? Yes, definitely. Oh, documentary, um, my experimental work, um, working independently without any budget, um, working, you know, on a shoestring to make some light stands or whatnot, all that, that speed. I mean, I'm, I, prior to making my first episodic, I was able to. Um, shoot a feature, I think the Owls, we shot within like two weeks. Um, it was just crazy with nothing, you know, no money and everybody you know, sort of volunteering and whatnot. So, yeah, the speed, the, the, the flexibility, the crew, you know, the, 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 you know, the unlawful lawfulness of making uh, a feature with, you know, sticks and stones. How has your time been working with Jordan Peele on Lovecraft Country, and what can we expect from that upcoming show? You're going to expect a lot. I mean, Jordan's team was there. Um, the real genius behind it is Misha Green. So I think I love how everybody is like, oh, my God, this is Jordan's work. But Jordan, <laughs> Jordan and, and, and Bad Robot are just were partners on it, and they were great partners. They were you know, they, they helped facilitate a lot of this stuff at the higher level in particular for um, you know, Misha's dream to come true. But Misha, I mean, boss that she was, was able to walk in to, you know, HBO uh, to negotiate. And when she didn't get what she wanted, she walked out. <laughs> so they gave her what she wanted and they gave her the, they gave her what she wanted. So, you know, it was amazing to be there 
um, for them, you know, for my episode. And it took a while to do it. It's a fabulous episode, 105. Um, and uh, it, I had all the tools that I wanted. If I wanted to, you know, do some pre-biz um, and change some of the pre-biz or uh, rehearse or, um, you know, bring in, have a choreographer figure out the dance or have a band, um, you know, make some music that was going to be in the scene uh, where a band was going to play. I, I was able to do that. I never, um, I, I wouldn't say I would never, but I, uh, that, that was magical to be able to um, have the tools to make my, my project and, and any tool. So I, I'm, I'm happy and blessed about that. Has it always been an interest of yours to try and tackle as many different genres as you can? Yes, I love genre. I mean, I think, you know, there's, there's a genre for everything, you know. Um, I think, you know, I'd love to, you know, I'd, I'd like to make work. I'd like to take, you know, make stories. And sometimes it's not, you know, a, a romance doesn't need to be uh, just a romance. Maybe it needs to be a, you know, a thriller, you know. I, I love to play with things. I love to mash it up. I, I find what fits. Um, I find, you know, and, 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 and what's going to be most impactful to couple with it. And, you know, I go for it. But deep down inside, I, I, there's always a bit of drama. Well, what kind of rules were you learning in university when it comes to filmmaking that really just irked you the wrong way and you've been trying to break it ever since you were taught them? You know, I think um, it, university life was many, many moons ago for me. Um, I would say the graduate school life was completely different, but the undergraduate life, I think I did not know about the possibilities and I did not know about my options. Um, and I think that, that those two things, um, the university can sort of put blinders on you because they only limit you to what is required for the piece uh, or the project or the, the test or, or whatever it's going to be. Um, they don't say go all out and, and we didn't have Google and things like that. So it was, you know, how do you go down a Google hole when you, there's no Google, right? I mean, I was at the library because my favorite place and it still is, um, where you look at the book next to the book, next to the book, next to that book. Um, and you take them all home and you look again, you know, so there, um, I think the university taught me how to be thorough about my research um, making sure that, oh, my God, I'm, I'm looking up, say, you know, black cinema, but next to it is a book on black theater. Oh, let me look about black theater. You know, that's something, why are they next to each other? You know, there's something there that I, I, I could find out. So, um, you know, do, being thorough about my research is what I constantly do um, and dig deep, you know, just as deep as you can before you get, so the, the roots are strong. What kinds of things do you think that we should be putting into place to try to get minority groups into film schools? Or do you think that it's really as simple as we just need to be better at inviting them in? Um, I don't know. You know, film school is a very interesting place. Um, I, I say that more people should um, do it as a primer, do it as a kind of two or three year thing, do some sort of training. Um, I think the best way to do it is to, you know, uh, look in a variety of communities where those numbers or where, you know, they're lacking um, and make sure a class is very mixed. I think uh, if you kind of look at it as a, 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 you know, your, 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 your first year class, you know, make sure it's diverse enough with the right kind of players, um, like a theater company or like a, 
you know, all the right characters in there and, and make sure that, you know, they're going to be challenging each other and, and pushing each other around. So um, I think that really does talk about diversity and really does talk about um, abilities, different abilities. I mean, so you're the uh, 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 beginning or freshman class or a first year class needs to also know that we're a diverse group. We're going to flip each other's rainbow and um, we're going to, uh, you know, be there on the other side for each other and we're going to complete this process together. Um, so uh, I, I think that's key. So that dynamic, that power dynamic that has to happen in that group has to be diverse or it's going to be lopsided and it won't, won't work. So you need to balance out every kind of group with, you know, the right mix and it needs to be, you know, beyond Noah's Ark, you know, in the sense of two giraffes, two zebras. You just need to have, um, you know, a group of everybody who's going to have the right mix and, and the right faces and colors and, and difference and abilities um, to, 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 to win. Where do you see the future of theatrical films going? You know, uh, I don't really have an answer for that one right now. I, I, I see productions... Um, I, I see the way that we can look at episodic as a long theatrical uh, uh, piece. Um, and there's, there's long, you know, like Dr. Zhivago-like things. I mean, that's probably a, uh, would be looked at as a limited series right now if we had to see Dr. Zhivago again, other than uh, being Dr. Zhivago. I had all those intermissions and things like that. So um, I think we're going to be seeing the two kind of merge in a different way. Um, again, it goes to, you know, with the COVID world, with, with attention spans, that's probably the best way to, you know, captivate audiences. Um, I, I, you know, but they still, you know, once the theaters open up again, you know, once we get people back into the seats, um, there's nothing like a, you know, a good old, you know, movie that you're in a movie theater with a group of people having this experience and you know being frightened or taking on an adventure um those numbers will are, are priceless still so i, I could see that that that's never going to die well finally other than lovecraft country what else can we expect from you coming up oh wow um let's see um i am working on a pilot for a new own show um, and I can't say the name yet, but it will be announced soon. Um, I am developing a couple of my own show also, um, based on some loose hanging fruit in the sense of projects, ideas that I've been, uh, that are mine, that I don't have to kind of seek a new idea, um, that will really, you know, play with, um, uh, the, the landscape of what's what's right and what's wrong about um, Hollywood today. I'm just going to leave it very broad. Um, very I uh, I know I can't I can't really <laughs> give it away, but I can just say that it it, it definitely um, it, it's going to really open some eyes. Um, I uh, I'm, I'm up for a couple features. Uh, I'm on a ton of shows. I, the issue is when is Hollywood going to open up again? The last thing I shot. Um, and the show got shut down was Claws. Oh, actually, the last thing I shot was All Rise, and All Rise did figure out how to finish their season with a, a, a virtual episode, um, and I was the episode prior to that. So my last thing I shot, which would, have, would be Claws, who knows when that will come out. Um, but again, the, the next thing you'll, you'll see from me is either that 
Qualls episode or the the, the pilot um, that I'm, I'm working on for the new OWN show. Um, and I, 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 that's 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 all I could say. But there's a lot of stuff that I'm, I'm already on the table for working on. Uh, Why the Last Man? I'm up for. A, I, I'm slated to direct an episode of that, um, uh, and a, a variety of other things. Cheryl, the impact that you've had on cinema and will always have on cinema is deep. I'd like to thank you for being on the show. It means a lot to me, and I'm always excited to see what the future has in store for you. Oh, thank you, and I, I wish you the best. I, I wish all these um, listeners um, to you know really figure out what their mission is and you know jump on board that 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 wagon horse or whatever you know and and take that ride and keep on riding. Awesome. Thank you so much, Cheryl. You're welcome. Okay, bye-bye now. Bye. Thank you for listening. Catch Lovecraft Country on HBO and check out Cheryl's amazing work over at places like Canopy and the Criterion Channel. This concludes our broadcast day. (laughs) 